greener on the other side. Caterpillar to a butterfly. Bye, bye, butterfly. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Welcome to Green and Growing. Happy Saturday morning. I am your host, Ashley Frasca. You hear me during the week, Monday through Friday, right here on WSB and Triple Team Traffic during Atlanta's morning news. But all gardening today from now until 9 o'clock this morning. And I am away, but I wanted to bring back some of the best of calls from this month, some of the questions that were really, really well thought out by some of our listeners, and also be introducing you to Clint Waltz again, revisiting our conversation about what to be doing with spring green up on the warm season lawns. And I want you to meet Peggy Whitlow Radcliffe from Charm, a recycle facility in Atlanta that's doing some really amazing things. Then coming up at 8 o'clock, information about the Dahlonega Butterfly Garden and, of course, Pike Nursery along at 8.30. Today's topic, tomatoes. You don't want to miss it. Now out to the phones we go. Jody in Atlanta with a question about pruning. Hey, Jody. Hey, Ashley. Oh, hey, hey, you're there. What's going on? Hey, yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. Um, thank you for taking my call. I was curious, are there any like tree pruning or bush pruning classes that are available in the metro area? Um, I, you know, I, I Google things and see some, you know, you could go online and look, but I, I'm more the type that would be better suited to attend a class. And I know with COVID that probably restricted some for some time, but I was just curious if you knew of any. Well, you know what's funny? Um, that's actually COVID was when I discovered... Uh, more and more classes because so many garden groups were quick to learn online, whether it was Microsoft Teams or Zoom, and they were able to offer free uh, seminars and lecture series online. And many of them are still sticking with that. So uh, you being from Atlanta, I guess maybe Atlanta proper, North or Fulton County, um, on Facebook, instead of Google, go on Facebook and whatever county you're in, start typing that, you know, Douglas County Master Gardeners or for Atlanta, North Fulton Master Gardeners and see if there's not a Master Gardener group in your county. Oftentimes they will offer uh, free classes and pruning comes up a lot. This is the time of year, whether it's spring or fall. And also uh, Trees Atlanta. Trees Atlanta has actual like certification classes if you wanted to get that specific and go that route. Or I'm sure you could just sit in on one and not necessarily have to get the certification. But Trees Atlanta has wonderful classes, hands-on type stuff for that as well. And they're always looking for volunteers too, but they they educate as well. And uh, the Pruning Guru, someone that I have not met in person, but I have seen uh, online webinars that he has hosted, Rick Smith. Rick Smith's fantastic. Uh, and the Pruning Guru, I mean, that is his name and that is what he does. And his website is pruningguru.com. And I'm sure if you look on YouTube and type the Pruning Guru, you will see some uh, classes that he has given online and really, really good advice. And one last one for you, Jody, would be the Georgia Urban Ag Council. I actually think that's who sponsored the uh, online webinar where I saw Rick Smith. Uh, and go to Urban Ag Council. Com. I may post all of this on the Facebook page if any of you missed it, but that is a wonderful question, Jody, because I'm with you. I love classes and getting immersed in the topics I want to know more about. How about instead of Google, you can use Facebook to find local master gardener groups or even go on YouTube there. Of course, you'll find a lot of videos by local experts even. Thanks for the call. Now on to Smith calling from Atlanta. Hey there. Hi. Well, I've got, well, some years ago, I'll uh, just let my yard man put in what are popular zoysia species at the time, I believe it was Myers, and 
to the front yard, and I'm not happy with it over the, over the years. The shady, shade trees have gotten bigger, and the shady spots have thinned out and gone away. And uh, about 30 years ago, I had another yard at a different house, but it was a different kind of shade, too. But it was emerald zoysia, and always thick and, and lush. And they went through a, a, a period of trying to come up with the latest and greatest species of zoysia, and I don't think they did a great job. But what works to, I just want to get some species of zoysia that I can plant partially or have it put in partially around the yard, around these bare areas that sure. would just fill in with the rest of everything. So, um, and you're smart to be thinking along the lines of zoysia because that is a little more shade tolerant than Bermuda when we're talking about our warm season grasses, Smith. So um, emerald is so common, Myers so common, but uh, they the varieties have really come a long way. So Clint Waltz would recommend something like Zeon. Zeon actually does better in shade than emerald. So Zeon, zoysia, something to think about. And also uh, El Toro is a newer one. The texture is a little bit different than what you would see. Um, if you look at a side-by-side comparison of El Toro, say with emerald or Zeon, um, but Zeon and El Toro would be my recommendations. And when we're talking about being a little more shade tolerant, still needs about four hours or more of direct sunlight. Because again, we are talking about warm season grasses. So still that sunlight is required. But start with that. Do a little bit of research on that, Smith. And I think you'll be quite happy. And just a reminder for folks looking to install new zoysia lawns, uh, the best time for sodding, we're really going to want to wait till summer, May, June, July, to really lay that down and let the roots establish. 404-872-0750, Greenville, South Carolina. Good morning, Jennifer. Welcome to welcome to Atlanta. Hey, good morning, Ashley. I have a question for you. Sure. I am looking for a small tree, and the one I was looking for is called a dwarf red bud because mm-hmm. it's an it's, but I can't find them anywhere. But I have a small area in my yard, about eight to ten feet from my house, so it's not going to interfere with you know, any of the roots being under my house or anything. Got some really big, decorative, huge boulders right there. But I'm looking for a small tree with really pretty, vibrant color. Doesn't have to grow fast. Can you give me some suggestions? Because I can't find the dwarf red buds, even though I see small ones everywhere. Yeah, that, uh, you know, I actually had um, a friend of mine, Peggy, reach out, and she was looking for redbud seeds to just throw along her property line. And that's funny, you're having trouble finding red buds too. Of course, the eastern red bud is what we all know was a beautiful tree here just weeks ago with bright purple flowers that actually grow along the trunk or the limbs and stems of of the tree. And red buds are beautiful, heart-shaped leaves that kind of go from a green to a deep purple almost. But for the size you're looking for, Jennifer, I came up with a few. Uh, Coral bark maple, any maple tree is going to be showy. And of course, there are dwarf varieties, smaller varieties. You'll have to do the research. But the thing about the coral bark is once the leaves fall off, the bark is literally a coral color. So it's always going to be something to look at with winter interest as well. Um, Rising sun red bud is beautiful too, since you're talking about red buds. Rising okay. Sun Redbud is gorgeous. It almost looks, it, it's like an optical illusion. It'll play tricks on your eyes because the leaves will start to yellow out at the tip and then still go, okay. you know, different variations of green going more in toward the trunk. And at times mm-hmm. it could be almost four or five very similar shades, but it just looks so cool as they start to change color. Um, little Gem Magnolia 
I know a lot of magnolias can get really, really big, but little gem magnolia is going to stay a little smaller. And European smoke tree. If no one, you know, or someone doesn't know what a smoke tree is, in the spring, literally the big hairy looking blooms look smoke, like puffs of smoke. Um, And European, there's American and European, and the only reason I I delineate between the two is because that'll only maybe get to be 15 feet high, whereas American is going to be a lot taller. So there's a start for you. Okay, and all those can take full sun. Yep. The ones, all those. Okay, that's perfect. I will try to find them. We don't have pikes here, so our nurseries are really small. It's hard to find any, anything, and I, I don't really bu- want to buy that kind of tree online. You know, that's unfortunate because in South Carolina, you got pike in North Carolina. You got them in the Atlanta area, but it is tough to buy something online, too. So if anyone can help Jennifer out, too, call before the end of the show. 404-872-0750. You're listening to WSB. The update on your weekend weather brought to you by Finley Roofing. Back to calls in just a minute, but first this. Green and Growing. Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Here's your garden to-do list this week. Love this part of the show. Try to do it throughout the show. Number one, clean out bird baths. Keep them half full with water. Make sure you're keeping up with hummingbird feeders too. Cleaning them is so important and refilling them. And don't use the pre-made stuff that's red. Easy just to do. Four parts water, one part sugar, and there's your nectar. Number two, large dirt mounds in sunny areas. Well, you've got fire ants. The mounds can reach up to seven inches high and 24 inches or more across. So use a broadcast bait. There are brands out there like Amdro or Ortho that are going to help you out. And number three, plant corn, bean, and pea seeds now. Plant tall growing crops like okra, pole beans, and corn on the north side of other vegetables to prevent them from getting shaded. We kind of had to strategize and keep that in mind in our own raised beds a couple of weeks ago. Plant two or more rows of corn for better pollination. I don't know a lot about corn. So when you call me and ask me about corn, I'm probably going to tell you I don't know. (laughs) And coming up at 6.30, Clint Waltz, our earlier conversation from uh, a few weeks back in this same month, though, talking about all things lawn and answering some great turf questions from all of you. Plus, he'll have something to add to the top three things to do this weekend. Next is Randy calling from Lawrenceville. Hey there, Randy. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Ashley. I hope you're doing okay today. I'm almost ashamed to ask this question. I'm 65 years old, and I should know the answer, I guess, but I have a fairly small garden. Should I? Um, how how critical is it to rotate where you plant the uh, location where you plant? Should I? Uh, how critical is it to rotate the tomatoes, the peppers, the okra, and all that stuff? Um, and how often should you? If you do, how often should you rotate? That is really, really a good question. And don't be ashamed at all that you don't know the answer because people can go years and plant their tomatoes in the same spot. And go, what are y'all talking about crop rotation? My tomatoes always go in this bed. This is the spot in my yard that gets the right amount of sunlight. And other people don't have as much luck. And they think, oh, I just don't have a green thumb. I, I have failed at vegetables. But what has to happen is three things have to be present for something to get diseased. And we know we don't want that family of plant in that spot anymore. So you have to have the host plant. You have to have the pathogen, whatever disease is introduced into the area and the environment. You know, year to year changes. Of course, that's 
sun and rainfall and all of those kinds of things in the environment that produce maybe the onset for disease or maybe one wetter year is going to produce more bacteria in soil. But crop rotation is important. What they say, Randy, is about every two years. So when you're good with your tomatoes in one spot, like this will be year two for me, I'm going to keep them there. And you know what? I may even be risky and I may even try to plant them there next year for year three and see how they do. But what folks notice is just a diminished yield, right? The plant's not going to look as healthy. That's caused by pathogens in the soil and also low soil fertility. You know, you got to think if you're just putting tomatoes in the same spot every year, but not really adding any amendments, those plants year after year are just leaching nutrients out of the soil. So crop rotation is a good idea for folks who are planting on a larger scale. That's why they do cover crops like clovers and things like that, just to add nitrogen and all of that back to the soil. So, yeah, the the short answer of it, Randy, is try your hand at it. Don't be too concerned with it. But once you start getting a lot of diseased tomato plants, that's when you want to make a note to yourself next year. Plant something different from a whole different family, like peppers are a different family than cucumbers and zucchini. So that way you you may want to think about rotating the type of vegetable. The main reason... It would be kind of inconvenient is because I already have posts in the ground uh, that support my tomato cages. I would have to uh, change a lot of things to rotate those. Yeah. But Well, uh, I mean, and just do your best, too, to control the environment, control what you can. Get out there and visit the tomato plants every day. Remove yellowed leaves, anything that looks diseased. Have your insecticides on hand, you know, to combat the worms have fungicides if necessary, just keep a good eye. Any tomatoes that fall onto the ground that just don't survive on the vine, remove those. Do your best to manage good practices there. Keep the plants mulched and things like that. And also try to think outside the box. If you've got those posts in place, maybe start thinking, well, maybe beans next year or something that grows upright that may benefit from from that and put the tomatoes in another spot. Kevin in Tallapoosa. Hey there, Kevin. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. I was wondering about a compost pile, Mm -hmm. what I need to keep it covered. Should I put a tarp over it or anything like that? You know, some people have them in enclosed containers, so that wouldn't hurt if you think there's going to be critters that are ruining it or if it's just unsightly. Yeah, but it does need sunlight because the temperature has to get over 100 degrees for it to really start breaking down. And you do want water to get on it. The compost piles have to stay moist. So a good rule of thumb Wet the pile about once a week. So if you've got the tarp over it, it's not really getting much rain. So once a week to keep just the material and the consistency damp, almost like a sponge is kind of where you want the water level to be. So a rain would not harm it? No, absolutely not. No. And I mean, you know, some people do have them out in the open. So if it gets a lot of rain, that's totally fine too. You may just have to keep turning it a little more because we got to keep just all of the materials throughout somewhat consistent as far as moisture and keep turning them too for the heat. But no, this this amount of rain is not going to hurt it at all. It's got to have water. It's got to have air and just a balance of that green and brown material. You know, when we talk about that, things that you're putting in there, the brown material like dead leaves and limbs and the green stuff like some of the clippings from the kitchen, eggshells, things that were alive, you know, and you put in there. So that's all a good mix. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Great question. Thanks for calling. Right back after the news with University of Georgia Turfgrass Specialist Clint Waltz. He answers some of your burning questions next on Green and Growing on WSB. Oh yeah, the grass is- 
The grass is always green around the other side. Caterpillar to a butterfly. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries on 95.5 WSB. As you listen to Green and Growing this morning on April 30th, I am away. I'm having a nice quick vacation to Colorado, a place I've never been. But earlier in the month, I was lucky enough to have a special guest on the show, one who you typically hear from maybe twice a year here on Green and Growing. Everything you need to know about your lawn, your grasses right now, this is the man who knows. Um, I'm not going to say an old guest. Because he's not old, but old as in he's been on the show before and even the Lawn and Garden Show with Walter Reeves. Clint Waltz, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's always good to be back. And you you love coming in person. That's the thing. Because like sometimes we have to do this over the phone, but being in studio, you really get the whole feel for what's going on. I do. And it's, it's nice being here in the morning and getting up early in the morning. In turf, working with golf course superintendent, sports field managers, oh, yeah. it's, it's been part of my life for 30 years almost, so. Early in the morning is not a problem. There's a lot of us that are up early. I went to Quick Trip to grab some donuts for us this morning and a lot of hunters as well. Uh, the parking lot was full with pickup trucks and guys in camo. You know, they were on their way out hunting at uh, 4.30 this morning. Heading so. towards turkey this time of year? I don't know what you're hunting for this time of year. Do you? Deer, yeah, no deer idea. Deer season's out, so. There you know, go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so turf grass specialist. You're based at the University of Georgia Griffin campus. I've d- been down there to visit a couple of times. For anybody that wants to see one of those field trips, uh, I posted a video that Clint and I did together months ago, I guess probably mm-hmm. last spring. That's on the Facebook page previewing that, that Clint was going to be on the show. So I love having you as a resource because the questions that can trip me up nine times out of ten our turf. And I know a little more than I give myself credit for, but there's just so much to know, right? Whether you're getting inundated in the spring and summertime with disease problems, uh, bugs and insects that are getting to the lawn, just basic, what lawn do I put where and in what conditions? I mean, so starting with that, let's start with the basic. We actually had a ZD call a little while ago from Douglasville and asking when's the best time to sod a yard and what type of sod. So that's kind of vague. But we do have a lot of new people down here, Clint, sure. from moving from all parts of the country. Um, so we've got our warm season and our cool season grasses. Talk about the difference in that. And that right there may help folks determine, okay, that's at least I know what type I need. Sure. I tell folks uh, when I do, especially master gardener classes. So we're teaching some of those people that, that are into gardening. Um, and many times with the master gardener program, turf is not why they get into master gardener, but it's part of the overall mm-hmm. curriculum. And, and I said, let's give them a good appreciation of, of what grass is. Turf scientists, we're not real creative. <laughs> so uh, when I say that, that it means we take it simple. The, yeah. Our grasses are split up between warm season species and cool season species. And it's, it's actually a little more complicated than just when grasses are doing their active growth. Um, the two warm season grasses and cool season grasses handle photosynthesis and energy within photosynthesis a little different. So there are some physiological differences. Mm-hmm. But for the practical side of it, if grass is growing during the cool times of the year, fall, winter, and spring, it's a cool season species. Fescue stays green all year, almost, yeah. Fescue will stay green almost all year, mm-hmm. but during the summertime when it's hot, its growth rate slows tremendously. Yeah. And we see it open up and, and start to decline. It never loses green color. But then our warm season grasses, their active growth is during warm times of the year. So they're starting to come out of dormancy now as, as soil temperatures and air temperatures are beginning to warm up. 
as we're getting more sunlight during the day. Folks like to say, oh, we get longer days. Well, last time I checked, we get 24 hours in a day. <laughs> so the days aren't getting any longer, but we are getting more sunlight uh, on them. And uh, so as, as two environmental cues are starting to happen, our warm season species are starting to green up. And then they'll have their active growth during the warm times of the year. And when we start to, to cool down and um, and we're getting less and less sunlight in the fall, that's when their growth rate slows. So warm season species, things like Bermuda grass, centipede grass, soysia grass, St. Augustine grass, um, or our warm season grasses, they're starting to green up and get going now. And our cool season species that we have in especially the Atlanta area, North Tall Fescue, for example, is our cool season species. And so I do, I see my neighbors very well manicured Bermuda lawn starting to green up. And so that's kind of exciting to see that happen. And remind folks to those warm season grasses, whether it's St. Augustine or Centipede, uh, zoysia, I guess, too, and Bermuda, how much sun, I mean, that's going to answer the question for you right there. How much sun do you get if you've got a big tree canopy? That's really something you need to think about before you try to lay down a warm season lawn. Well, another thing we talk about, many of our horticulturists know it very well, is is right plant, right place. Mm -hmm. Turf grass is a plant, too, and uh, different species have different requirements. And uh, so some species like zoysia grass and St. Augustine grass can take a little bit of a limited light or shade environments. Whereas other species like Bermuda grass really prefer as much sunlight as they can get. Now, yeah. all of our warm season grasses do great in the sun. And, and folks ask me, so, well, okay, you talk about it doing well in shade. How does it do in the sun? All of our warm season grasses mm-hmm. prefer as much sun as they can get. Yeah. But uh, some can take limited light better than others. Uh, so many of our Bermuda grasses, they're, they're looking for eight hours or better. Of, that's of, a lot. Uh, that is. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, that's almost full sun. Now, we do have a couple cultivars of Bermuda grass that can take down to say maybe as low as five and a half to six hours. So something like Tiff Tough or Celebration Bermuda grass um, are, are examples of, of Bermuda grass cultivars that they can take a little bit of a limited light. Uh, but we get less than that. We really need to be thinking about something like St. Augustine grass or, or zoysia grass. Okay. Now, we, uh, Walter and I heard from uh, a listener, Richard, not too long ago, just a week or two ago, saying that he's got a pretty healthy, vigorous zoysia lawn, never greens up until late spring. So Hmm. in spite of watering and fertilizing, just never becomes that deep green. So do you think that's something he's doing wrong, or is it common for zoysia to be one of the later ones to green up? Um, There's tremendous genetic diversity within the zoysia grass species. And uh, we have about 16, 17 different cultivars commercially available being grown in the state of Georgia of zoysia grasses. But in general, zoysia grasses actually have better cold hardiness than many of our Bermudas. There are some exceptions. So depending on which cultivar he has, it may be a little slower to green up in the spring. There's a couple I can think of that that do tend to green up behind some of the other zoysia grasses. And zenith is one of those that tends to be a little slower coming out of the gate um, in in the spring. Or at least that's been my observation and what I've seen with it compared to some others out there. How important is it for your average homeowner, like like myself or someone listening, I at least want them to know and be able to identify the lawn that they have, but as far as the variety, is it really important for me when I'm buying any kind of product for the lawn to know what variety of Bermuda or what variety of zoysia I have or not so much? It helps. Yeah. And there are some pesticides out there that when they've been tested especially some of our herbicides, have been shown to be more injurious on certain cultivars within a species. And cultivar remain, main, yes, cultivar means cultivated variety. Mm-hmm. So it is a cultivated variety within a species. 
Um, and some cultivars have been shown to be more injurious within a species to a particular pesticide than others. So sometimes it does, and it's worth reading that label. It's always worth reading yeah, that please, label. Please, please. Um, worth reading that label and knowing which ones you have. But uh, many times, just knowing the species is is all you need. Okay. All right. So that's that's good enough, being able to identify what lawn you have. If you just moved into the house and you didn't get to ask the uh, prior homeowners, you know, hey, what is this? How do you maintain it? How do you care for it? The University of Georgia Extension and Walter Reeves years ago put out the great calendars that are still mm-hmm. circulating. Those. Um, lawn care calendars. And the best way you can find those, it's a very simple one-page calendar for each of the grasses you just heard Clint talk about. Go to WalterReeves.com. Eventually, I'll put them on my site, but WalterReeves.com and type lawn care calendar. And literally, it it benefits you to print out this one-page, month-to-month, what to be doing with what grass type you have. Yeah, I've got the same calendar. It's not Walter's. It's it's mine through mm-hmm. UGA uh, on, on our website, Georgia Turf, as well. GeorgiaTurf.com. So, so I have that, that website pulled right up. Um, and spell out Georgia. Uh, GeorgiaTurf.com is, takes you to our UGA Turfgrass website. College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences right there. Blogs, events, all kinds of things you need to know. I was going to ask you, too. So green up is really an important time for these warm season grasses. Are they a little more, do they need to be a little more protected from maybe us doing herbicides or something like that? Do we need to be a little more careful when we're tackling weeds during this period? Those transition periods for our warm season grasses are when they're kind of most susceptible to to mismanagement or damage. So absolutely, um, many times this time of year is our warm season grasses are coming out of dormancy. Our, our cool season weed species, so things like annual bluegrass or poa annua or poa. Is Which is so folks. obvious right now yeah, in warm it's, season it's, lawns. It's throwing seed heads and it's kind of mm-hmm. got that white look to it and that kind of thing. But likewise, many of our broadleaf weeds as well. So things like henbit and chickweed and Carolina geranium and um, hairy bittercress mm-hmm. and things like that that are out there in the lawns right now that are kind of starting to pop up. Many times a mower works very good this there time of go. year as, as as your as your weed control options. Many of those weeds want to grow up uh, a little bit taller and above the top of the lawn. So just putting some mowing stress on top of those weeds will stress them out. And as we start to warm up, uh, those weeds will kind of go ahead and die off on you. Um, not putting out a herbicide where we run the risk of, of doing some damage to the turf and setting it back during these transition periods can, can help you out another three or four weeks down the road. Mowing, that is something to, uh, you know, you're really getting busy right now. You've you have been mowing fescue a little bit, but now we're kind of at that period, vigorous growth every week, every other week. So my next question for you when we come back, Clint, will be to bag or to not bag grass clippings. Plus, we'll get into defining some common tasks to be doing in the yard and your questions, your calls for Clint Waltz, turf grass specialist from the University of Georgia. Stay tuned. This lawn conversation will last until 7.30 this morning. I'm Ashley Frasca. You're listening to 95.5 WSB. So a free resource for you here this morning, talking turf, lawn, grasses, however you categorize it, until 7.30 with Clint Waltz. And though this show is my favorite free source for garden info, there are free resources Mm -hmm. and people that do exactly what you're here doing that can help people with their grass questions. You get your county extension uh, agents right there in, in your county and... As long as you're paying your taxes, you have access to, <laughs> to that service. So, uh, yeah, one and, and that's your link right back to the University of Georgia and, and all of our research mm-hmm. and all of our expertise.
1-800-ASK-UGA-1, the number one, 1-800-ASK-UGA-1, if you don't know how to get in touch with your county extension agent. Really, all you need to know is the county you live in. So in the couple of minutes we have here, Clint, you're talking about mowing and being kind of routine and how you mow is going to combat a lot of the weeds. You'll get to them before the seed heads really start to pop and spread and do all the things you don't want them to do. But the age-old kind of thing, do I need to bag my grass or do I just let the clippings fall back in the lawn? What's your best answer for that? (laughs) Well, first of all, I want to say this time of year, don't lower your mowing height. So if you're going to mow and let the mower kind of be some of your weed control, mow at the same height your turf was going into dormancy. So there's no need in going in and and mowing much lower Mm -hmm. than, than where your turf was. And if that's the case, you shouldn't be generating a tremendous amount of biomass, depending on how many weeds you have in your yard. But typically we recommend not to bag clippings. It's better just uh, to let those clippings fall back in. Nitrogen, right? That's right. Um, So you you go out and you buy, and nitrogen is not inexpensive right now. It's an expensive product. So you buy those nutrients, you put them out, those nutrients are taken up by the root, they're assimilated into the plant, and then it grows and you mow it off. Let it fall back in. Let the soil microbes break that plant material back down turn that nitrogen back into a usable form and the plant can take it back up so you're recycling there. The important thing is maintaining our one-third mowing rule. Mm -hmm. So try not to remove any more than one-third of the plant material in a single mowing. And I had a a list of questions that I wanted to ask. Dethatching, that's something that you hear as well. And folks, as soon as you describe it, they're going to know exactly what you're talking about. What is dethatching and why is it necessary and what's the time of year to be concerned about it? Uh, we'll take them one by one. Okay. What is dethatching? That's where we're trying to pull some of that old dead material out of the turf canopy and get a little bit of light, uh, get a little bit of temperature down to that soil surface and stimulate some growth as well as we're reducing old leaf or what we refer to as biomass mm-hmm. that would hold moisture and potentially harbor diseases and insects down into some of our turf species produce more thatch than others. And zoysia grass is one of those. So it's more apt to, to thatch. And one something other average homeowner might want to do every couple of three years. The other thing about thatch is for us in the state of Georgia, if we fertilize correctly, and for zoysia grass, we look at about two pounds of nitrogen per thousand square foot per year. So a half a pound of nitrogen in May, a half pound in June, half pound in July, half wow. pound in August. Zoysia grass doesn't need a lot of feeding, but if we want to keeping it fertilized properly, we don't overwater, we don't produce a tremendous amount of thatch. So we can mitigate some of our thatch problems with proper cultural, uh, cultural practices and, and likewise with mowing. So don't mow it too high. So those mowing heights we have recommended for them. For zoysia grass, we're back an inch, inch and a half is where we would like to be for it. So mow at the right height, fertilize at the right height. We don't produce a lot of thatch and it's not as big of a deal for us as it is, say, in other parts of the country with other grasses. Then you ask what time of year, many of our cultural practices and cultivation practices like that we want to do when the grass is actively growing. So again, once those soil temperatures are above 65 degrees at that four inch depth. So it's it's not a bad thing if you have thatch, some some dead material under the canopy, not a bad thing. Uh, We would like to have a little. A little is okay. Too much is is bad. So a lot of times we like to say about a half inch or so of thatch is okay. Uh, That acts as a little bit of a natural shock absorber, especially if your yard is being used for, you know, playing ball on or or something along those lines, or even dogs. That that helps with uh, giving a little bit of a a cushioning for the grass itself. When we come back, I want to talk about one grass growing into another, how to stay ahead of that. The use of rye grass, I get really confused about that. Plus your calls, 404-872-0750 on WSB. 